is humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Alden Ehrenreich on Brave New World, a future for Han Solo, and his comfort movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. We have a new guest this week, Alden Ehrenreich, um, someone that I've had the privilege of talking to for the gig at MTV over the years, but never on the podcast. And certainly, he's, uh, he's had an interesting beginning to his career coming up with the likes of Francis Ford Coppola and Warren Beatty being directed by those luminaries, and then, of course, starring in his own Star Wars film a couple years ago. And now he's back two years later with his own show on Peacock. Peacock, Sammy. Do you know what Peacock is? Yeah, everyone does. What is it? It's the uh, NBC streaming streaming service platform. Sammy, you are so plugged in to streaming yeah. services now. Yeah, it's my thing. <laughs> I have Quibi. <laughs> do you wait? Do you, okay? Do you subscribe to Quibi or do you do just the? Let trial me tell thing? you exactly what happened with Quibi. Please. Um, Princess Bride. Yes. Oh yeah. Let's talk about that. What did you oh, think? Oh my God! I have never enjoyed anything more in my life. Let's give some context. So it's Jason Reitman, <laughs> um, noted filmmaker, decided to launch. Uh, kind of a recreation of The Princess Bride in 10 different parts with a bunch of celebrity friends. Um, and it's just word-for-word word recreations, kind of low-rent, low like, think, um, be kind, rewind, Michelle Gondry style. Um, all version. shot on their phones. Exactly. And it's all benefiting, um, I, I, I want to say, like, food World banks. Kitchen. Some, well, yeah, that sounds right. Some great the cause. The Jose Andres. Exactly, exactly. And it rolled out over 10 days on Quibi. And... Um, yeah, Sam, I actually am with you. I ate it I up. It's loved great. It. I want them to do other movies. I'll tell you, I had one problem with it. Okay. Mandy. I, I, I would have loved. I thought of that. Uh, Mandy does not show up, though. Um, yeah. Uh, well, Carrie, Carrie always does yeah. show up. Robin Wright does not show up. No. Which, um, that's upsetting. But if Mandy showed up, I I would have... I know. I was a little surprised by that, and how and how heartbreaking, how beautiful that it ended oh with, my Carl God, with Carl Reiner. Reiner. Oh it my just, God! It was unbelievable. I would. I, uh, it was very touching. We are not on the Quibi payroll. I mean, I've I've had my fun with Quibi. They've had their troubles, but I will say, um, this is a, a really charming uh, piece of work that they created, and it has so many cool stars. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I, I corresponded with Jason about it. I reached out to him because I was, I was such a fan of what he was doing. And at the time, what did he was, say? Well, he, he was, he was very appreciative. And I, and I said, oh, who time, are you? Leave me alone. <laughs> no, but I, <laughs> I said at the time, I was like, I can't wait to see how you use Charlize because I know he's tight with Charlize and has done uh -huh. a few films with her. And sure enough, she does pop up in a fun role. That um, was, what was your favorite one? Oh man, there were a few. There were a lot of really good and interesting castings. Mm -hmm. um, who did Caitlin Deaver play? Caitlin Deaver did a good. She uh, did. Uh, she was. It was her and Finn Wolfhard did the sword. She did the sword fight, fight. scene. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think well, she was in Mandy's role. I want to. So, no, maybe yeah, not. She, she was. In, no, no, no. She was um, the. I think she was the man in black. Yes, she was the man in black. I thought she did a good job. I, there's so many now. I'm blanking on all the ones I oh, liked. The Jack Black one, where he's climbing up. <laughs> you know who I thought? There's and his mask is like half off his face. Jason Siegel did a good Andre the Giant. 
incredible Andre the Giant. I just, I literally smiled and felt so happy the whole time. I loved that. Yeah, no, that sums it up well. It is a nice breath of fresh air and a, and a, and a nice source of joy in the universe right now. So check that out. Yeah, I, I think you can still probably get a trial subscription to Quibi, um, and that's worth checking out. And um, we'll see where Quibi goes from there because they've, they've definitely had some some issues, but they they got a lot of money behind it, and they're going to keep pumping out product, and we'll see. Um, well, their but, biggest thing is something that probably cost nothing because it, it's yeah, all shot on their phones. And... Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so the way we got here was we were mentioning Peacock, which is the newest mm-hmm. streaming service, which is debuting. It's I think it's literally, by the time you hear this, it has debuted. It's out. Um, and one of the initial offerings on Peacock, one of the initial offerings is Brave New World, which is uh, based on Aldous Huxley's you know, hugely influential book. And this is a big kind of miniseries. I think it might be an ongoing series, too. And it stars Alden Ehrenreich um, and Demi Moore and a bunch of interesting folks and a very ambitious, big budget. You can see they, they spared no expense on this. And this is Alden's first big role, first role at all, actually, since playing Han Solo in the really? Solo movie. Yeah, it's been two years. And I, I think this is, you know, when I was doing my research, I think it, it, this is probably one of his very first interviews at all since Solo. So this is it. I, I was really pleased to catch up with him, not only to talk about a Brave New World, um, but to also talk about sort of the aftermath of Solo, a film that he's proud of and obviously went through a lot of different kind of troubles, including you know, the change of directors and the perception of the audience and the high expectations. It didn't perform box office-wise, how people, how Disney certainly wanted it to. And uh, the, so we have an interesting kind of a post-mortem on, on Solo and whether he sees a future for him playing that character. Um, and uh, yeah, as a Star Wars fan and as a fan of Alden's, it was uh, really, really cool to be, I think, one of the first conversations with him about sort of what went down with Solo. Um, and then beyond that, of course, as you know, Sam, we've been doing comfort movies. And this is one of the first, probably the first one where we've really gotten old school. We got a pick from the actor where they really went to a, 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 a unadulterated classic. Alden's pick was It's a Wonderful Life which Sammy has never seen. You're such an asshole. I was going to fake it. Really? Okay, what do you know about... Let's t- summarize It's a Wonderful Life for me. Jimmy Stewart. That's all. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's accurate. Christmas? <laughs> Christmas does. Yeah, it's a I, I only describe movies. In, oh, my God. You're, you're great on passwords. Singular words. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is a seminal uh, Christmas movie. It's Donna Reed. It's Jimmy Stewart. It's um, one of the great villains of all time, Mr. Potter. It's, uh, you know, I was going to say everybody has It's a Wonderful Life as part of their film vernacular, I guess, except for Sammy. Well, it's, yeah. I like to break the mold. <laughs> I guess. You should check it out. It's a legitimate great movie. I've seen it many, many times. Um, and okay. this was a nice excuse to revisit I it. I do love classic movies. Apparently like, been, not. If you don't I've see been the... exclusively watching old movies. Okay. And this one, it's just every time it comes up, I'm like, eh. This one, it's it, you know what I'm going to say? And we get into this this conversation with Alden about it. It's not what you think it is, I would venture to say. It's not okay. as warm and fuzzy and cheesy. It's actually a pretty dark movie. Uh-huh. George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart's character, is a kind of a beaten down, really like, you know, a guy that just wants to get out of a small town and live a big life and keeps making sacrifices and finds himself on the short end of the stick and then, you know, is suicidal. Literally, he's about to kill himself and then... and 
finds out what life would be like without him in it. Um, and it's, uh, I was actually surprised when I watched it on sort of how dark a film it is, and in particular how dark a role uh, George Bailey is for um, Jimmy Stewart. It's a, it is a classic. It stands up to the, um, you know, the reputation it has. So uh, if you haven't seen it before, like Sammy, if you're a weird unicorn like her, see it for the first time. If you have seen it before, but not for a number of years, this is a good excuse to go back and check it out. And um, really fun to, to mix it up with Alden about this one because he knows his movies and it was a, it was a good pick and a fun conversation. Um, other things to mention, Stir Crazy, my Comedy Central series continues with a wonderful uh, guest by the name of Esther Witzke, sometimes known as Little Esther, a very funny comedian with a new, uh, new special on Comedy Central. Uh, we had a blast chatting uh, next week on Stir Crazy, a no. very, very familiar person to happy, sad, confused listeners. And Sammy, I'm not going to say it. Don't it's not me. It. <laughs> it's not Sammy. Yeah. But if you listen to Happy, Sad, Confused, if, you're, if you have a similar taste of sammy for instance yeah i think you're gonna enjoy next week's guest on Star i Crazy. think they will oh my god <laughs> um and then other things to mention you know you know, want to give a little plug uh people have been talking on twitter a lot about the new big netflix action movie with Charlize theron the old guard i liked it a lot it's uh directed by gina prince blythewood who's a really uh strong filmmaker who's getting a shot at kind of like a superhero-ish film in this one um, and there's been a lot of chatter in like the film Twitterverse about it, and I just want to add my two cents and say it's definitely well worth checking out. And kind of the closest thing you're going to get to like a big summer movie right now is The Old Guard on Netflix. I saw you took a – it gave you an opportunity to really take a stance on Twitter about people pronouncing her name. You really I get angry. got really passionate about it. it I gets, you know what? It, it, this, I think I've probably mentioned this in the podcast at some point. It gets, it gets under my skin that people mispronounce Charlie's Theron's. Theron, not Theron, not not Theron, not Theron. Mm-hmm. Theron. Um, it, that they mispr- I, 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 and I, I don't care if John Q. Public messes it up, but I'm, my point was, if you're a film journalist, a film critic, someone that interviews people for a living, I would think you would know how to pronounce the name of one of the top ten movie stars on the planet, and and someone that's been a big movie star for 25 years. All I'm saying. <laughs> This is, this I think is, it's like it's a good cause for this you. is the stuff I get animated about. <laughs> Your face is bright red. I get angry about Donald Trump, COVID, Black Lives Matter, and this pronunciation of Charlize Theron's name. These are my causes. Yep, this all checks out. <laughs> These are all the big ones for me. Yep. Um, yes. So I did want to plug that one. Uh, anything else? Anything else we should plug? Sammy, what have you been watching? Palm Springs. Really loved, loved, loved that movie. Like, want to watch it again immediately. Sammy's on board with the Palm Springs train. Everybody that sees Mm -hmm. it, I feel like, loves this movie. It's on Hulu right now. Uh, Andy Samberg, Kristen Milioti. The less you know going in, the better. But even if you know the kind of twist involved, I think you'll still appreciate it. Funny, sweet, smart. um, Definitely one of my favorites of the year. I'm with you. Really good. Okay, let's go to the main event. Uh, remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Uh, spread the good word. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy this chat with Alden Ehrenreich. It's good to see you, Alden. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right, all things considered. Um, we were just yeah. catching up. I guess it's been it's been about two years since the insanity of the, the solo press tour. Does it feel like two years or... 10,000 years. I mean, that was an unusual kind of event. Yeah. It feels right. like you were the last interview I think I did on the entire junket. 
I feel like I'm privileged that I've hit you in these weird spots in your career. Like yeah. I hit you up, I, I talked to you and Francis for Tetro in what has to have been one of your first interviews, I would guess. Yeah, I remember, uh, if my memory's right, oh, maybe we were in New York then. You yeah, were we were in New York. It might have been, yeah, it was definitely one of the first ones. I was 19. Crazy. And then and yeah. then to see you kind of like come back around in this new way in recent years. And then, yeah, caught you at the end of the solo press tour, right. um, which was a trip. And, and now you're back with Brave New World. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some comfort movies. There's a lot to catch up on. Um, first, just talk to, can we do a little like debrief on sort of like where you were at? Because I saw you again at the end of that press tour. And it was unlike any kind of an experience, <laughs> a very unusual kind of experience in many ways. Did it take yeah. you time to, to kind of decompress, like to kind of like, where were you, where was your head at when Solo came out? Well, you know, you're, you're so inundated with things that you have to do that you're kind of just, fun, you know, you're functioning on a kind of autopilot, basically. Yeah. yeah. So I took time off mainly because, like, it was about a three-year process altogether. You know, from the time I started auditioning for it, I auditioned for it for six months. And then I was, we were shooting for, I think, 11 months. And then the press tour was three months. So it was like I just hadn't been home with people for a long time. Right. So I went back to sort of, like, what my MO was when I went to college, which was, if something comes along that I love, then I'll do it. But if otherwise, it's like kind of, you know, you have to go be a human being once in a while. Totally, totally. And so this this is literally the first time you went in front of the cameras again since that experience, right? Brave yeah, World. exactly. Exactly. I started reading stuff and I was reading things that were good, but just didn't really dig in for me or weren't, weren't enough of a challenge or whatever it was. And then I read this, and it was just, like, the smartest, most human and emotional piece that I'd read in a really long time, and nothing like I'd ever read before. So it was, and yeah. I, I don't know about you, but, I mean, for me, I think it's going to be the experience for a lot of people. The the term Brave New World, the what it refers to, this, like, seminal kind of work, it's one of those right. books that, like, I think a lot of people know about. I had never read it. Right. I, I had not read Yeah. It. And, uh -huh. and I think we have vague like notions of what it's about. It's kind of in the like you know in the Orwellian kind of sphere, um, and and what the words kind of conjure up. Um, what, yeah. So you, you say you hadn't read the book. What did what did what did Brave New World even mean to you when this project came around? I was aware of it, you know, like sort of in the same way we kind of all are a little bit, you know, you kind of have heard of it and have some vague sense of what it might be. Getting into it, the thing that was really interesting was, like, it's a utopia, you know, in, in it, the way it presents as a utopia. It's like right. a, it's a dystopia dressed up as a utopia. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, if you're passing through, this looks great, but it looks a little great. bit underneath the surface. Yeah, yeah if you're there for a little while, but it's... Um, and so, you know, and, and the ways, you know, Orwell was Huxley's student, and I'm going to totally botch this story completely, but David Wiener, the showrunner, told me a story at the initial meeting that I had with him, which is that Huxley sent him a letter after 1984 and said, you know, this is a great book, but my concern for the future is not this, you know, overt totalitarian ruler that takes over everything. It's more that we will give up our freedom because things are made so convenient because we're taught that our world is so wonderful because we'll, you know, we'll do it ourselves because we get stupid 
And that resonated a lot more with me and felt more prescient. Um, and, you know, it's also a world where bad feelings are sort of illegal. You know, all yeah. the things of, of monogamous relationships or family or having parents or all of that, all those things are illegal in, in New London. And what that's really about is controlling the inner life of people so that they always feel happy. Everybody's taking Soma, which is this pill that makes you, that balances your levels. So you never have to feel fear or anger or frustration or anxiety or anything like that. And so the show becomes this really emotional and really interesting treatise on what is the value of the feelings that we call bad feelings? Like, what is it to live a life without them? Right. And, and obviously there's something less than human about it. Like, where, where does that stuff go? And so it's both this really interesting philosophical show and also every scene is just living in the moment-to-moment thing of these people and what they're going through and how these things exist in their day-to-day lives. Uh, you're helping inaugurate the uh, the latest streaming service, Peacock, so everybody should check it out. Uh, Brave New World is an ambitious undertaking. Clearly, there's uh, no, uh, you know, a hell of a cast and a hell of a production value behind this one and well worth checking out. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today also about, you know, as you know, on the podcast lately, I've kind of change the subject a little bit so that we can kind of celebrate movies that we we find comfort in and i'm always interested in hearing about sort of where people form their tastes uh, who influenced their film tastes so indulge me if you will let's go back when you were a kid who was the biggest influence on forming your tastes as a uh, as a film lover Oof. well you know when i was a little kid it kind of there's so many iterations of it when i was really a little kid it was turn classic movies was on all the time any movie that I would see, I would just want to be the person in the movie. I used to take, my family had these like old books they used to do that was like the MGM story or the world of movies. And I'd take little pictures of my face and, and cut it out and like put it on the people and, and photocopy it in our photocopier. Um, and I just wanted to do it, you know? And I remember seeing uh, as a really little kid, you know, um, Westerns, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and my mom really loved John Wayne. Uh, when I, we did like little film festivals in the house of Marx Brothers movies or Charlie Chaplin movies, um, which I think is great because I think if you don't see that stuff young, you'll never want to watch it. Like totally. if you're watching modern shit, why would you ever watch a silent movie? Yeah, same with me. My dad definitely got me into like Marx Brothers, Abbott and Costello, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. And yeah, like I think that that's the time between like five and 15 where you're really sponging it all up and then your, your kind of taste form and it's harder to kind of adopt new habits. You're totally right. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, and, and, and you can, it'll always be with you in a way once you have it at that age. So it was a lot of that. And then when I was, and it was always that it was just watching all these old movies, all these kind of movies from the fifties and, um, and, and what they were showing at Turner Classic Movies. Now Turner Classic Movies is probably showing stuff from like the 90s. I don't know. <laughs> They're actually not. I've been discovering it because I, I'm, my dad watches it wall to wall, so I've discovered through him. And like, some other channels, I, it does bother me. I'm not going to lie. When I right. see, see things like IFC or BBC, and it's like IFC is just, I mean, I love independent film, but what they're showing right. is not independent. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. Um, well, it's it's like when the oldies station starts playing songs that you think are new. But that's um, even different. That's like you can understand because, like, yeah, we all get older, but like in no era was what they're showing an independent film. That's right. another story, though. Right. <laughs> Is it true? I read this. Um, so your parents weren't in the industry at all, right? No. But 
Is it true that your namesake is Phil Alden Robinson? Yeah, not Great in director. A, yeah, my mom was pregnant and they went to see Field of Dreams and they saw his name on the screen and that was where they heard the name Alden for the first time. So they didn't know him. It was literally, they just yeah. liked the name. That's so funny. But just liked the name. And then when I was uh, working on Warren Beatty's movie, he was over for dinner at their house and Warren invited me up and I got to tell him that and we took a picture. And he was Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had uh, a kind of version of that. I met a kid who was named Alden after Star Wars came out, which was really Oh, sweet. man. Amazing. Pretty sweet. So, actually, I, I did want to get to, to that because you've had the, a really fascinating career in that, you know, proportionally speaking, the filmmakers that you have worked with in a relatively small body of work are like the the greats, like beyond. And men, and several of them are the kinds of filmmakers I know from experience and reading and interactions that are more than just like hired guns. They They create an environment, they expose their actors to films. I mean, so two I want to go into a little bit before we get into your comfort movie um, mm -hmm. is Coppola and Warren Beatty. Um, mm -hmm. Coppola, who, who basically started your career with Tetro and cast you in that, um, did he expose you to, to films? Did he, like, bring you to the famed Napa estate and, like, kind of open your world a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that was, like, the most kind of wondrous experience. I was 17, and I was auditioning for that movie, um, and I mean, there's, it's a long story, but basically that was a five month, I think, audition process. I flew up to Napa to the vineyard. We had a big lunch outside on the deck. Um, I brought up this white Navy uniform that I wore in the screen test. We did a screen test there. Um, Tetro, that film, which was my first film, was kind of referenced um, the red shoes and Tales of Hoffman a lot. So we watched... Tales of Hoffman, I think. Um, and then the process of making that is I went down to Argentina. I did a screen test in Argentina. He had me direct a bunch of Argentine actors in a play in his backyard. So he gave me an Ionesco play, and I had to direct that to a bunch of actors who didn't speak English. Um, and, then, uh, and then we came back, and we had a whole rehearsal process for a month. I was living with him. We'd go and have a, a costume party where the, you'd have to dress as the person your, your character would come to a costume party as. Um, I, I, then I'd go back to his house and he'd be like, you know, you should watch um, Rocco and his brothers or Ashes and Diamonds or movies like this. And, uh, and it was just this incredible experience. It was my first experience. And it was much more of like an extension of high school theater than anything else. Right. Um, which is really where he honed this process, which was directing plays it at Hofstra and then going into working with a generation of actors and filmmakers who were so connected to the theatrical tradition, all the, the whole cast of the Godfather obviously is coming out of the actor studio and all these people have this really deep connection to what it's like to rehearse and all that. And that is, um, and I, so I just thought movies were like that, you know, and that's also to go back to the other question, that was the second phase for me when I was like 13. Right. I read The Godfather and saw the movie and that whole generation of actors coming out from that time in 70s cinema was such a huge revelation because, you know, that is like a cinema where almost the way like uh, 
in certain parts of the film universe right now, like technology is kind of the star of the show. It's like, that's the most, that's what's the most innovative. That's the new thing you're seeing on screen. Yeah, back then it was a new acting technique, a new way of actually acting on screen. Exactly. A special effect. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So to be like in a movie about an Italian family working for him was like a totally a dream come true. Um, and then he's been just the most gracious, generous person ever since. And I've, you know, gone up and visited with him at the vineyard and Amazing. asked him about filmmaking. And it's always, you're always learning. And like the thing with him too is that it's this pure inspiration. He's still so inspired about what the medium can be. And he's so bold and kind of brave and has so much resolve in what he believes in and, and in art. It's, his belief in art is a lot higher, uh, a lot kind of grander than most people, I think. It sounded like in recent years he was going to finally get back around to making his fabled Megalopolis. The, yeah, uh, I, think which, I think that's he's working on it, yeah. Yeah, I spoke to I spoke to like an actor recently that was like at a read through. Like it's 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 closer than it's ever been. I think, which is kind of staggering. I'd love to see yeah. at least another. Uh, I mean, all, all his stuff, whether experimental or more traditional, or, is fascinating. So whenever he gets behind the camera, I'm I'm down. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, I, again, I, we could spend hours talking about Warren Beatty. You certainly put in yeah. years with Warren. I mean, there's nothing normal about his <laughs> process. I know the way he. Um, casts and the way he then kind of brings actors into his world for you were i mean you were you must have spent countless months days years with warren dating i mean it was it was i was 19 it was after tetra came out it was that summer uh and i went and had lunch with him for the first time and Warren was really interesting. Warren is much more central. Warren is in Hollywood, you know, like Warren is in and has always been in Hollywood, and Francis has always been outside of it. Yeah. Um, and Warren has this, you know, experience that is pretty singular. I think there's probably a handful of other people who have this, but like he was before that, the generation that he helped usher in and champion and was age wise a part of is not who he started with right the way his contemporaries did so he started in the old hollywood studio system with kazan and you know having with he was new and had friendships with louis b mayor and yeah. no he and, was the, he was a contract player he was part of that system right and he so and his stories are unbelievable uh and no has known everybody yeah and has a very specific point of view on everybody and the meetings are you know four hours long at least you know like that's kind of the shortest there were ones that were nine um and for me it was just like this great apprenticeship and this learning about getting to ask questions about someone who was knew all the people that i grew up watching on screen um you know, and that was five years. You know, we talked about it when I was 19 and he was going to shoot it in, you know, I think the next year and we shot it when I was 24. It's funny to think because it's like, in a way, not to diminish the work and what happened, but it's like almost the bigger thing you probably got out of it was five years of hanging with Warren Beatty than like the time yeah. on set in a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, like what I learned from him on every level is kind of immeasurable because it was just also just watching him as a kind of example and watching him as an actor who, um, you know, really helped another generation, helped 
helped kind of storm the castle a little bit, but he was the guy who opened the gate in a way because he was already. Yeah, I mean, I, I I will say like you know I've been doing the the podcast for a number of years and I've never had a I've been never you've never seen a smile wider in my face than the hour I spent with Warren and I'm just like he he's oh, just really? oh my god like and yeah. on that's tip of the iceberg like I can only imagine yeah. the, the he, he yeah you you just want to hear every story because he is like he is as you say a link to our past and for yeah. a film geek like that's like amazing. exactly. Okay, so so uh, we've 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 uh, danced around it enough. I asked for a comfort movie from you. You went old school. You went classic. Um, talk to me about why you chose what you did and uh, what resonance it has in your life. Well, you know, it's like I think this. You know, it's a wonderful life. Is it's funny to think of it as a comfort movie in a way because you kind of think, oh, well, something that you mindlessly watch or something that you can kind of get cozy and forget about stuff and that's not my experience of the movie but i do find it deeply comforting because my experience of watching it is this it's everything i want in something it's um in the sense that you walk out of it sort of a different person and you walk it to me every time i've ever watched the movie it's like this wake-up call about our lives are short certain things matter and certain things don't. Right. And when you are able to stay connected to the things that do your life is so much better for it. Um, and there's, it just, the, it's not a movie about a movie. It's not a movie about it's, it's, it's kind of more than a movie to me. It's like a, it's a kind of, um, it's storytelling in, the, in its highest form in the sense that it, 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 yeah, it does something to your life. You leave that theater I try to go see it every year in a movie theater because you leave the theater feeling a connection to the other people in the dark room that you didn't when you walked in there. Right. Um, and it's a kind of a magic trick at how it does this, you know, but it's, there's just something about it that I find uh, is just magic. Well, it is an interesting one because it's one of those movies that is so ingrained in, in, in most of us. Like, I, I don't remember the first time I saw it. It's a Wonderful Life. It's kind of always been there. Um, and yet, part of the joy of this podcast is revisiting things. I, you know, I haven't seen it in a while, and I watched it the other day. And yeah, each time, this is, that, this is the mark of a great film. Each time you come to it, you get something a little bit different out of it. You see different things. Um, yeah. You know, and I can mention a few things I saw this time around, but yeah. like, it, it, it's to set it up for the audience. I mean, this is what this. I mean, not that it requires much setup, but of course, this is Frank Capra, um, the ultimate Frank Capra film. Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed. Um, it's uh, let's see, date is December twentieth, nineteen forty-six. Um, Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Potter, <laughs> Thomas Mitchell as Uncle Billy, Henry Travers as Clarence, um, and of course, it tells the story of George Bailey, who. Um, has selflessly given up, sacrificed uh, many points in his life for others, and then uh, reaches kind of a critical point in his life where he thinks of giving it all up and then is shown sort of what life would be like without his existence. Um, look, now you don't even have to see the movie. I've summed it up. <laughs> but it, it's so much more than that. I mean, um, I don't know where to begin except, well, you know, I mean, here's the thing that struck me on this probably 25th time I've seen it is um, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart's performance and and George Bailey as 
as a fascinating character. You know, I feel like people talk about George Bailey and Jimmy Stewart in these wholesome terms, like he's just like perfection. And George Bailey is kind of a dark character. He like, yeah. Well, it's it's yeah. yeah. I think there's a shadow. There's like a a world almost what we were saying about Brave New World. There's a kind of version of it to Wonderful Life that people think of when they hear the title if they don't know the film. And the film is radically different than that in the same sense. And that's that Jimmy Stewart embodies that. I mean, in this, in the sense that you think of Jimmy Stewart as this aw shucks, sweet guy. And you watch this movie and like there is a rage and a despair. His performance in this is to me, you know, um, it just feels like one of the most deeply felt, genuine. Yeah. Not only do you feel like he believes in what the movie is, you feel that he believes in what the character is going through. You feel that he's living it. You feel that he is completely um, in it, in this story and in this world. And, and Jim, it's kind of this confluence of Jimmy Stewart, the person, you know, this is the first film he did after he came back from the war. I saw that. Yeah. He was really scared about the kissing scenes. He was like, you know, said like a fellow gets rusty and, he was, but, but he was also coming back a war hero who had seen, um, uh, he, he was, the, I believe, the captain in the Air Force and saw real combat. And you feel this um, very different, darker edge. And this has been talked about, obviously, but this new thing in him yeah. that, um, that adds this whole other resonance to, to his work. Well, and he's, I think he's about 38 when he makes this film. As you said, he'd spent four years in the war, his first time back uh, in front of a camera. After that, he'd consider retiring. And, you know, he, he, he runs the gamut. He, he's playing George from 21 to 38. And, you know, it works, clearly. And, and, and we're seeing him at different levels of optimism and despair. And he's able to kind of show all those shades of, of the romantic, of the defeated man, of the, of the reborn guy by the end. Um, and, you know, you know this as well as anyone like having played like an iconic hero um and you know harrison's talked about in these terms like a jimmy stewart like it's it's tough to be the leading guy it's tough to be the everyman it's tough to like have uh, to play a role where an audience um is projecting themselves onto that um that actor did you is that something that that you've thought about a lot especially in recent years where you've played protagonists at the center of a story where you have to be kind of in some ways the everyman i wouldn't say hans an everyman but he's certainly a yeah more so in solo probably um yeah way but yeah i think uh you know i think the best way you serve that is pretty much to be as human and 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 make it as personal as you can you know that's the thing you feel with jimmy stewart it's like if you're specifically you that becomes universal in a sense right not to say you're you and, and some, some confluence of you in the role, but um, there's also, um, you know, your function is different too. That's something I think about a little bit, you know, when you're the protagonist of the movie, you are carrying what the movie's about and you are also the person who is, um, who's after some, who's sort of like need in the story becomes the engine of the story. Right. And, so you're you have to keep sort of a closer eye on that um totally your supporting role your dream or whatever you're after is less consequential you know to the to the story working you know you could you could do a great job and have that or do a bad job and it's okay but right yeah um 
you know, I think also the thing with The Summer of Life is like the movie starts with God talking to an angel about a guy who's going to commit suicide. And it's like, that's weird. <laughs> totally weird. Here's, yeah, I, mean, I was watching it. The structure of the story is amazing because you start with that kind of that, 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 that kind of prologue. You're in the stars and they're talking to each other. And then it's kind of normal and linear. The supernatural stuff doesn't kick in until the last like 25 minutes of the movie. You have a 90-minute movie just about his life. And then like the high concept stuff starts. Right. And in a weird, in like a kind of like structural sense, Clarence is kind of the protagonist because he's the one who's tasked with this deed. The first part of the movie is Clarence's like briefing on George's <laughs> life. Yeah. But while you watch it, you know, you are getting involved in it and seeing it. And the movie has these kind of short stories in it, is almost yes. what it feels like. It has these like very standalone beginning, middle, and end sequences that each have this just sense of wonder i mean it's hard to talk about this movie in a way because like it captures something that what's wonderful is that you can't quite capture it it's it's but you're watching this kind of when he comes home and she's made that house and gotten everybody on their wedding night because of the bank run um you know them after the uh the the dance walking and the george lasso's the moon like them on the phone when he has that phone call is such a fucking weird dark version of like the beginning of a love story the difficult person he's angry he's a challenging person it's so not it's so um you know and it's about disillusion really like what do you do with disillusion yeah um over and over and over again he's thwarted he has a dream that he cares about he's thwarted over and over and over again and how do you avail you, yourself to what life is rather than living in a kind of um, fantasy about what you hope it could be? So in right. some way, there's this resonance to the movie that I think is so much more complex and deeper and, and more profound than what it presents at. But you feel it, you know, and I think people feel it. I think one of the many reasons why it works is, is obviously beyond just Jimmy Stewart's performance. This ensemble around him, Donna Reed, is, is excellent in the film. Um, Lionel Barrymore is iconic. I mean, he's been Mr. Potter's been parodied to death, right. but there's a reason for that. Um, Uncle Billy, Thomas Mitchell's fantastic, and uh, as we we mentioned, Clarence played by Henry uh, Travers. Um, Zuzu is still around. Young Zuzu, oh, he's oh. 80 years old. Um, it's only 80. It's not even like she's even like 90. She's eight, I mean, she's still around. Right. Um, but it also has like a, even for a film that was shot like on a back lot and sets, it actually feels like Bedford Falls feels like a fully realized community. Like yeah. you know the cop, you know, you know the the purveyor of the drugstore. You you really have a sense of this living, breathing small town. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also why I feel like we all like know that town in a way. Absolutely. You know, it reminds the, the the only other thing that makes me feel the way this movie does is our town, which has a very similar reputation as being something a lot less deep than it is. And when you see it, it's like to me the greatest work I've ever seen. It's um right. And you you have this sense of a kind of universal home or place or community or town that I think we all yearn for and kind of know in some archetypal way. It's fascinating to, to, I mean, a lot of, especially film buffs, know kind of the arc of this film. But, you know, at at the time, it it was a box office disappointment. It got very mixed reviews, and and it kind of achieved the second and third life. 
ironically in part, I think thanks to it being in the public domain. So like any yeah. channel started to like show it over and over again. I, that was my experience as a kid, probably yours as well. Uh -huh. And to the point where it became um, a perennial, it's, 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 you know, it's that it's a holiday film, even though a lot of it doesn't take place at the holidays, but it is something that, you know, it's as ingrained as now it's like, when I grew up, I was watching Miracle on 34th Street, and It's a Wonderful Life, and now it's Elf, and, you know, it's just part of that pantheon. Yeah. Um, Capra, apparently, um, I was surprised to see this, that uh, supposedly he, he relied a lot on improv. He, he really? Yeah, he encourages actors to improvise. I was surprised by that, too. You know, I think Capra's also really interesting, because, like, he can pull off things that you would vomit if other filmmakers did it. Right. Because it feels like I read some of his autobiography, I think when I was doing Warren's movie, actually, and the whole thing is, like, the way he viewed his life was a Frank Capra movie. Every scene is him going into, like, the office of some big shot and saying, like, you know, I know I'm only supposed to be delivering the mail, but I got an idea, and, like, all this stuff. And, uh, and he means it, and I think you feel that, and I think that's true of all film, is, like, if the person means it, it can sort of be anything, if it's... Nice sincere and genuine and when you get the commercial feeling version of this movie it's literally the worst thing in the world and you want to like yeah uh, it's yeah. funny you say that because i feel like that's that's been a common theme in some of the comfort movies people have chosen it's like you know we're also cynical now and i'm uh, i'm guilty of it too but like if it's earnest and real it's, it's authentic to the filmmaker and the writer and director's story and they really you know like in a much much different way we talked about magnolia recently which is a, a really raw earnest kind of movie as dark as it is right. but because it is just so authentic to his life i think that's why it, it resonates and and this is the first comparison between magnolia and it's a wonderful life in history <laughs> but i think you see where i'm going with this right um, yeah. it, was, it, it was nominated for five Oscars, despite being kind of a mixed reception. Here's a, a fun fact. Best actor? Uh, I believe for best actor, and I, but here's the one one it won. <laughs> it won a special technical award for its depiction of snow. Oh my god! <laughs> Which you know, it's good. No, looks good. <laughs> No, it's good in that. <laughs> let's let's bestow some arbitrary awards to this film. Best performance in, in the film. Who would you give the award? Jimmy Stewart. I mean, you just have. To, I mean, she's phenomenal. Um, and who else is great in it? I mean, I feel like everybody. Is it Gloria Graham? Yes. She's great. Always, often playing that part in movies. Like she plays that in Oklahoma. Um, uh, but yeah, Jimmy Stewart uh, in this, and yeah, you can point to just so many different moments that are so incredible. So I, I also uh, a small award goes to the silent bodyguard of uh, Mr. Potter, who I don't oh, think God. ever speaks. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you feel his presence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, best scene? Do you have a favorite scene in the film? It's such a movie where I really could name and describe like seven scenes, but I think you got to say the end because what you get at the end of that movie is a, just a more powerful yeah. than most movies. Um, is there a favorite, again, these are all part of like, it's all part of the vernacular now, but is there a line that resonates with you, a line you've found yourself quoting over the years? Anything, anything the one that stuck out to me last time I watched it was... I think it's I'm going to jail. Isn't it wonderful? 
or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and he says something like, isn't hey Bert, I'm going to prison. Isn't it great? And like, that's where you get to me, like this deeper sense of the film is that like sort of, you know, to, to go back to Star Wars and Joseph Campbell and that work, uh, not Star Wars itself, but the work of Joseph Campbell and, and sure. some of what he was writing about, this kind of yes to life, this yes, this this acceptance and saying yes to what happens to you. Right. Even and especially when it isn't what you pre-configured. And that line felt um, emblematic of that to me. Like that's the to have someone screaming with joy, like "Yes, I'm going to prison." It's just a saying yes and embracing of life in its in its fullest. Uh, this is probably sacrilege to even ask. Should there be a remake or sequel? It, it's gotten. It, actually, there was a radio play version, which I think Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed were in. There have uh, been some kind of TV remake redos. Um, what do you think? Steven Stewart calls you up and says, "Alden." I have this great new reboot. I want to do It's a Wonderful Life. Are you my George Bailey? What do you think? Well, Stephen is a, I do whatever he wants. <laughs> That's the exception. <laughs> I play, you know, whatever, Mr. Potter. But um, I, uh, I think like a, the radio version, definitely no, there should never be a remake, uh, in my opinion, uh, just because you'll fail. Not because it's like sacred, sure. just because it won't ever be as good. Um, but uh, the radio play versions of it are not the ones with them, but the ones they kind of do now are nice because it's just like it doesn't feel like it's trying to re-update it. It's just like a different way of sure. getting the same story. Sure. Yeah. Um, that is It's a Wonderful Life. If you guys have not watched it ever, remedy that immediately. If you haven't watched it in some time like I have, uh, it's worth another look and worth kind of like, uh, you know, as Alden put it so well, it's it's a film that you get something different out of each time, and I certainly did. So I'm glad you 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 brought it back to mind for the purposes of this podcast. Um, so where are you at right now? We're all kind of in this weird new world. You're obviously talking about Brave New World. Are you yeah. are you starting to think about working again? I mean, you know, we all kind of don't know when that can happen, but what, where are you at? I mean, I think we're learning right now what it is to film something at this time. So, like, we really don't know. Um, and there are people who are opening up and filming things, and I think we're learning what, how truly safe it is because safety and is so much more important. Um, yeah. And so we'll see. You know, I I I'm reading things. I'm in pre-production on a a, a kind of medium-length film that I wrote and going to direct when this is over. Oh, nice. Um, and then you know, reading a few scripts. And we'll see. I think for me, it's like I need to I need to know really what the protocols are and that they're incredibly safe and that we've like learned the craft of this before I go back. Yes, I mean, same in both shooting my stuff, but also even going to the movies. I mean, look, this is, I I live and breathe this stuff, but like I'm not gonna, you know, as much as I want to see Christopher Nolan's new movie, I don't want to risk my life to see it. It's not worth it. Right. Does, does, um, I'm just curious because, like, I've had a chance to uh, I've talked to Ron Howard a couple times in recent years. He's he's proud of Solo. I think Solo has, if anything, grown in estimation from by folks. I think it, it it was had so much baggage at the time when it first came out. It was just as we referenced earlier, it was an odd circumstance. Um, do you feel like you have new perspective and, and pride in it that you didn't two years ago, or or has it changed much for you, or what? Um, I feel. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't feel new to me. I mean, I felt that then, and I think we were kind of 
aware going into it, like not, there were kind of two levels of baggage. One was the publicity of, of the director change, et cetera. But the other thing is that there's kind of not a movie, you know, that you, that the general person would have let, you know, when you hear there's going to be a Han Solo movie, I think everybody has a version of that movie in their head. Right. And so my experience of anything like that is that when you first see it, all you're doing is, it's like when you see a movie that was adapted from a book, all you're doing is, well, that's not what I thought it was going to be. You know, and so I think, um, I think there's, I think like what happened, my sense of what happened in this kind of it being championed again in whatever way it has is that people walked away from it and returned to it as what it is. Yeah. And the thing that I think is the coolest about it is just the people that are in it, you know, like there's just, it's such a cool cast, Amelia and Donald and Phoebe and Woody and everybody and Paul Bettany and Tandy Newton. So I, I think, um, yeah, I feel, you know, and, and hearing about kids signing like boxes of, you know, with the uh, action figures and stuff in it, like that's, that's who these movies to me are really for. It's like for kids and the kids in us. And I think uh, that felt, Right. I can say my, my, my nephew, it's his favorite of all the Star Wars films. It's a, it, it's a special one. Um, in this wake of, I mean, you know, obviously, and I don't want to go down the road of the, the, the production, but like Gordon Miller obviously weren't able to finish what they wanted to do. So in this age of like the Snyder cut, the air cut, there's not, we, we shouldn't hold our breath. Like there's not enough for a Lord and Miller version of that film. And would you even want to see what that even looks like? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. You know, so much of this I was in the dark on as far as what was going on behind the scenes. Of yeah. That. But, uh, you know, I think there's a million reasons why that probably won't ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, are, are you cool with... Uh... If they did, if they really wanted to and everybody was cool with it, I'd be happy to watch it. <laughs> Interesting day, yeah. Um, in this age of Disney Plus, would you ever want to play the character again? Different iteration, different kind of. Uh... It'd have to be really. I th- yeah, I would if it was a really. It'd have to be the right version of it. If there was like a cool, you know, what's cool and we're kind of free in a way, you know. You got past the hard part. You got <laughs> the hard part. Uh, so I think, and I always felt that honestly is like the fun of the character. This is, you know, maybe the comment that I'll regret saying the most. But the real fun of that character, my favorite part of that character, is something that kicks in at the end of the movie. You know, it's when he becomes that guy at the end, that's the guy you love. So getting, um, you know, getting into that, kind of going from there is uh is interesting so we'll see but i think they're i think you know now they're being so inventive with how they're using star wars and putting out stories in a different way that maybe they'll be you know i can see maybe some out of the box interesting iteration of it somewhere we'll see who knows yeah i'm rooting for it man i'd love to see you uh strap on the belt another time in a different kind of incarnation um it's good to catch up with you man i always enjoy our our chats uh we've talked about every kind of different sort of film over the years and it's fun to not only talk about a new series brave new world on peacock but a a veritable classic and it's a wonderful life um thanks buddy as always and i I can't wait to see you in, in more normal times you bet thanks a lot And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. 
Remember to review, rate and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.